0: Okay, welcome once again, it is uh, Sunday, May 2nd, 2021, so it's the first Sunday, fifth month of the calendar, which is um, very interesting, we're already so much into the year, Um, it's May, so we can look forward to hopefully the end of a lockdown, hopefully a closure, or at least the end, beginnings of the ends of the closure to this unfortunate season we are, uh, we've been enduring for about a year now. So, let's turn to our Bibles, on that note, uh, to Judges chapter 10, and we're going to be reading the entirety of it, so all 18 verses of chapter 10. Uh, Of course, we're just coming off the heels of the story of Abimelech, the son of Gideon, and his, you know, his death, and ultimately the downfall of his kingdom, and we're now leading into um, the 10th chapter, and it's going to be an interesting one. Let's read it together, Judges 10, verses 1 to 18. You have your Bibles open, you can follow along, and I will read from my Bible, it's NASB, and you can follow in your scripture, and just keep it open today. You're going to need your, I mean, you should keep it open every week, but uh, if you need a reminder, just keep your Bibles open today as we look at the text. Judges 10, 1 to 18, this is what the Word of God reads. Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shemir. After him, Jair the Gileadite rose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and he had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havath Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Kemen. Then the sons of Israel again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord serve the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel, who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the uh, Maonites oppressed you, You cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. When the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah, the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Amen. This is the word of God. We have lots to pray for, brothers and sisters, but we'll begin uh, with our Unreached People group of the day. It's a very small group. They come from Russia. I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but they are the Hinuk of Russia. There are only 600 of these people, and they're Muslim. Um, Islamic community, 600 people. I'm not too particularly um, attuned to Russian geography, uh, but they seem to be living in sort of the far west southwestern regions or region of uh russia and uh so we're gonna pray for them there are no christians in this community all 600 of them are or so of them are muslim so let's pray for them very small community but still an unreached people group and so uh, we're praying for any sort of obstacles to be overcome in preaching and sharing the gospel to these people we're also of course praying for Um, a couple things that have happened um, two things in particular come to mind Uh, this past friday i believe friday uh, april 30th uh, in israel there was a stampede of people uh, that unfortunately resulted in about 45 deaths Um, it was a festival um, for this community of very uh, ultra orthodox jews and um, i believe someone slipped or started to begin to slip and fall they were in like a tunnel people started panicking and they started running and like children died, people died, like it's very unfortunate. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a catastrophe. So we're going to pray for recovery in that community and uh, pray for uh, those people who've lost loved ones. Uh, we're we'll also praying for India. Of course, you know what's happening with COVID over there. It's the epicenter of coronavirus at the moment. And, uh, you know, we here in Ontario are freaking out over 4,000 cases a day. They have 4,000 deaths a day. Um, so it's not even comparable uh, in terms of what's happening over there um, and we'd like to pray for them if you've seen some of the images and uh, things that are coming out in the news of what's happening there it's very gruesome so let's pray for India and that community and recovery uh, but beyond everything else that Jesus would be preached uh, to these people um, let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you so much we thank you for brethren and the community and the sisters and it's the loved ones we have uh, to be able to even spend with in endurance in this season. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather today to read Judges 10. I pray that it would speak to us in ways that maybe we can't immediately upon first reading understand, uh, but that we we'll begin to get unlocked and that we would be able to observe these things and receive them in truth. God, we also pray for um, the community of Hinuk and uh, these unreached, this Unreached People group in Russia about 600 of these people small community yet unreached fully unreached and so father we pray for christians to preach the gospel to them that obstacles would be broken hindrances would be overcome um and the good news of jesus would be shared we also pray for india at this time that's going through um just a COVID crisis and we're seeing um thousands of people dying a day um and it's it's just so horrible and horrific what we're seeing and observing um and so, Father, we pray for recovery in that community and we pray for um, hopefully a lowering of COVID cases and, and a lowering of deaths um, as we we don't wish this upon anyone. And we pray, Lord Father, for um, hopefully assistance and help from the international community. And we pray also, more than anything, that the Church of India and the Christians there uh, would share faithfully the good news of Jesus to those who are hurting and are in pain are in fear, lack of joy. And we just ask that, that community would stay strong. We also pray God uh, for Israel at this time. Um, we're kind of reading about, and we pray, Lord God, for the unfortunate catastrophe that's uh, occurred this past weekend, uh, the tragedy with the stampede and 45 people dying and losing lives and loved ones, uh, losing loved ones. Um, just I just pray God that You would be with them uh, in their emotional recovery, mental recovery. I um, can't imagine what, it, what it's like. I remember reading an article about a father who lost a son, just 10 years old. I just pray, God, uh, for healing in that community and uh, turning to the gospel of Jesus as well. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Yeah, let's pray for the world. It's, uh, it's uh, quite unfortunate when we uh, open the news every day. I don't know if you do, but you open the news every day and it's just bad news. <laughs> so, we turn to the good news today. Today's sermon is entitled... Dangerous habits. Um, We all have habits, right? I'm sure we all, I mean, I don't think there's a human on Earth, right? If you're physically and mentally capable, that doesn't have some kind of habit. You may have heard of the saying that people are creatures of habit, right? This phrase, of course, indicates the nature of pattern and cyclical, repetition of action and behavior in our lives. There are, of course, both good and bad habits that exist out there. Smoking is a classic bad habit. Exercising is a classic good habit. A habit is defined in the dictionary as a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that's hard to give up. We've already observed the habits of Israel in the book of Judges, right? The pattern has been fairly consistent so far. The pattern has been Israel sins, God punishes, Israel cries out, God delivers, Israel sins again, right? We've also discussed that the template of habitual sin is a reality in our own lives, right? The pattern we see in Israel of constantly sinning, turning to God, getting some relief, and then we turn away from Him again. And then that pattern, just, it's kind of you know, replicated in our own lives in a certain way, right? And so we've discussed that. We've discussed the habit of sin. And by biblical measure, the habit of sin is nothing short of dangerous. It's a dangerous nature. It's, a dangerous, it's dangerous because our lives are on the line. Right? Our lives are on the line, but we don't view our sinful habits in this light too often, very often, maybe at all. In today's text, we see a similar pattern of events to prior chapters and episodes, right? But there's a dramatic twist and you probably caught it. Israel sins, God punishes, Israel cries out. And this is the point where God delivers, right? God does not deliver. He does not. He relents. At least not right away. I don't know about you, but the word that kind of popped out for me as soon as I read that was, wow. This chapter should have caught your attention, I think. What Israel learns here is something of gain to us as well. And it's of great magnitude. Yes, God is good. And yes, God loves But he also leaves no sin unpunished. And apparently, and this is frightening to me, he also remembers. Remembers us, our sins, our tendencies, our habits, and our past. He sees the very pattern of sin that exists within us that we observe in Israel, and he acts on that observance for the purposes of teaching something greater. To help us turn away fully. Right? Now the relenting of deliverance here is not not strictly punishment, but it's correction. We must understand it that way. We've discussed this before, that punishment is not just purely punishment. That discipline and punishment from God to God's people is almost, I would say, is always for the purposes of teaching and for the purposes of correction. Right? Now, we have a dangerous habit of sinning. We all do. I don't think there's a person here I could, I don't know, I may not know much about you, but I know you're sinful and you have a pattern of sin in your life. But believers also have a dangerous habit of taking God for granted. Specifically, His grace and His forgiveness. We all have that friend, right? Who's just too nice, right? They'll just always be like, okay, okay, okay. And then what happens? People just start taking advantage of them. So in a way, we treat God this way. We think He's just some old softy that's always going to save us. Let's take a look at today's text and learn four things. Number one, our sins are done in the sight of the Lord. Always. Number two, God does not
1: owe us deliverance. Number three, you get
0: what you want in the end. And number four, God's great heart of compassion. So we're going to look at That's the four things that we're going to look at. Okay. Number one, our sons, our sons, our sins are done in the sight of the Lord. We've seen this phrase before, right? Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty repeated phrase, right? I've already talked about it a few times. And we've seen it frequently in the pages of Judges thus far. Now, as much as this is a, tr- this is a use of repetition for rhetoric. in teaching, is- in teaching us and readers. And teaching Israel, who's the original readers of this. Uh, of the cyclical pattern of sin against God. I want us to deeply consider the concept of doing evil in the sight of the Lord, right? That we do evil in the sight of the Lord. A lot of times we have the tendency to be like Adam and Eve. We sin, we eat of the fruit and then we hide and we think a bush will hide us, right? And then God comes and he's like, where are you? And we're like, I'm here. (laughs) God's like, who told you to eat? And then we start blaming other people, right? We have that tendency within us. It exists within us, right? So, we do evil in the sight of the Lord. We must know this, that our evil is always done in the sight of the Lord. Most of us consider our sins to be of private nature. We can easily get away with the wrongs we commit in our lives because nobody's looking or nobody's watching. At least not physically, we don't see them looking at us. It's fascinating the difference in moral behavior in a human being that we demonstrate ourselves when we know someone is watching. And when we know, nobody is watching. The difference in moral behavior is astronomical. When we know someone is watching, and when someone is not watching. This is exactly why, right? It's better to, like, you don't want to be in a compromising position, right? Um, like, sexual sins are almost always committed in privacy. They're not, you know, you don't have, like, public, I mean, you typically don't have public displays of this kind of stuff, Right? It's when couples are alone that things happen. Why you need to be a little bit more cautious about being in privacy, right? As much as you love the person and you want to spend time with them and you want all of their attention and you want your attention upon them and their attention upon you, it's, it's also a dangerous thing to be in a position like that. Why? Because privacy leads to a tendency of sin.
1: A temptation of sin right
0: even as believers of an all-seeing god right no christian would say god is not all-seeing almost every i would say every christian should believe god is all-seeing all-knowing we know this and we still conduct ourselves as if god is blind there are many reasons for this of course but we behave contrary to what we know classic christian hypocrisy right Let us be reminded today that the evils of our life are always done in the sight of the Lord. And I don't say this for the purposes of generating guilt in your life, but fear of God. When we say fear of God, it's reverence of God. It's respect for God. One of my favorite shows on the old school television set. Right? You guys remember what a old school TV, like bubble TV looks like, right? One of my favorite TV shows was, uh, it's a weird show, but it's called Cheaters. Um, <laughs> this is a show dedicated to catching unfaithful partners. I don't know why. I just really enjoyed it. I just, I just love the idea of someone getting caught like red handed in the middle of something, doing something really wrong. Um, and I just love how mad their partner would get. Now, a, sp- a suspicious partner would ask this show to spy on their partner. And they have all this tech to like do it and they would confirm, right? Their deepest fears. And almost always, they would be right. I mean, the show was built on the premise of being right, right? It's it's like, oh yeah, we investigated your partner. They're very faithful to you. (laughs) Like, that would be a lame show. Uh, The show is exciting because it's almost always the case that this person gets caught. So, almost always, they would be right. The best part is that, okay, when I say best, I don't mean it in an exciting, like, I'm so excited, but it's like the most entertaining part of the show is the moment when the guilty partner is caught red-handed and is approached by the crew. The crew comes out. It's like that show pranks. It's like ha I pranked and then everyone pops out and they got cameras and they got lights and this man is just like or usually it's a guy but he gets like totally like ruined. Um, and the crew comes out and the reveal happens and, and then their ex, what will soon be their ex partner comes out and just starts unleashing wrath right? The fact that such a show existed and had enough material for seasons of episodes is quite sad. But for pure entertainment purposes, on my end, man, it was fascinating to me how drastically, how drastically, in a split second, the person who was caught guilty, how their attitude completely changes as soon as they're caught, right? Their behavior completely shifts at the single moment they realize, I goofed.
1: And I'm caught. I was being watched.
0: They even try to deny it sometimes like oh you don't understand let me like let's get out of here away from the cameras and I'll explain everything right. They do everything in their
1: power. Will we be like that in front of the throne of God?
0: Or will we have sort of like an Isaiah 6 moment where Isaiah this prophet confesses, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Will we be like that? It's one thing to sin and, another thing to, and it's another thing to sin against someone in front of them. Here's a commentator who gives us this little tidbit of food for thought. This phrase, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, is repeated seven times in the book of Judges. It shows that the evil of Israel was even worse because they did it before the eyes of God. We could say that it is bad to commit adultery. But it is far more offensive to commit adultery before the eyes of your spouse. Point number two. God does not owe us deliverance. He doesn't owe us deliverance. Verses 10 to 13. This is an obvious statement, right? For Most of us who are biblically literate, we understand this. But do you truly believe it? Do you treat grace with gratitude? Or do you cheapen it by assuming it's rightfully yours? See, one time a police officer came to my high school and he asked this question to us. We we're just turning, I think I was grade 10-ish. And uh, we were all like of start, getting into the age where we we're eligible to get our G1, like our driver's license. <clears throat> so the officer came. And he was talking about like drunk driving and other stuff. But he's like... Okay, kids, like, do you think a driver's license is a human right or a human privilege? And everyone was like, human right, human right, it's a right to drive. And he's like, wrong, it's a privilege. Not a right. Sometimes we cheat God's grace.
1: It's a right. Like, you died for
0: me, you have to save me. <laughs> you have to forgive me. Oh, man, don't cheapen it like that, please. Please. We like to pump ourselves up with the idea that we deserve something in life. Anything in life. No, you don't. I'm going to go anti-culture for a moment, okay? All those stupid messages you heard as a kid, they're wrong. You don't deserve happiness. You don't deserve joy. You don't deserve peace. You don't deserve to be treated a certain way. You don't deserve to be like, respected in any way. You certainly don't deserve the life you even live. You don't deserve an ounce of anything in your life. We are creatures who've sinned against an almighty God, a creator, we are unholy as unholy can be. You don't deserve anything. You don't. And that attitude will help you have gratitude. But it's when we fall into the false narrative of the world. You deserve this. You, are, you, you be who you are. Like whatever. No, don't be who you are. I don't know, I don't know who comes up with this garbage.
1: We are not ones who are indebted to by God, but the ones who are in debt. We do deserve one thing, though. Death, eternally. And God owes us nothing. But Here's the beauty of it. He
0: does gift it to us. He gives us grace, as Ephesians teaches us, right? From the moment sin entered the world, He exercised, gra- exercised grace. We call it the Proto-Evangelion. This is Latin for first instance of the gospel. Or Greek. Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 1-3. to As soon as Adam and Eve sinned. If you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Did they die? They didn't. Why? Because God was gracious to keep them alive. Not only that, what did he do to help them? Even after cursing them and banishing them away from the Garden of Eden, what did he do? He kills something for the first time. He kills animal. An animal of some sort and skins it and gives them clothing. The first instance in all of human history, in all of world history, in all of biblical history, where something died. And when something innocent dies, it covers the sinful man. That's the promise of God from the very beginning. I will shed innocent blood to cover the shame of your sin, and you will be saved. I'm banishing you now, but you will be back, but on my grounds, by my will, in accordance
1: with what I, de- what I desire.
0: It's the beauty of the gospel that it's a gift, not something that we deserve. In verse 10, Israel yet again cries out to God in the midst of their distress. Funny how they know God is their deliverer, and yet they can turn so easily away from Him. Remind you of anyone, Perhaps. They also seemingly genuinely repent, right? When you read this, you go, wow, Israel's repenting. Now, if you didn't know the rest of this story, you would assume by verse 9 that God would just send a judge again and deliver Israel. But not this time. God has seen this movie before. He's seen this time and time again. And this time He demonstrates that His mercy is not to be taken lightly. Just as the punishment for sin is not to be taken lightly. God is not some get out of jail free card every time you find yourself in a hole. He's not there for you to out of obligation, but out of compassion, which we're going to look at later. And Israel learns this lesson the hard way. They cry out and repent, but God knows that just saving them again will do no good for them. They must learn to truly repent, to truly turn, to truly appreciate and adore God. God wanted for them, one commentator writes, God wanted from Israel the same thing He wants from us today. A heart that will put its hand to the plow and not look back. That's Luke 9.62. He wants us to come to the place where we know that there is nothing worth following except God. And then Davis writes this, There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on.
1: So brothers and sisters, let us not be those who look at the cross and
0: think that we deserve it. Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection are a gift not earned but given by grace. Seek deliverance, absolutely. Seek forgiveness. Ask for it, of course, from God. But in your heart, in your mind, do not assume that it is rightfully yours and that God has to give it to you.
1: It's a promise, surely. Put your
0: faith in Jesus. He will forgive you of your sins. Absolutely, it's a promise. But you're not to take that with some kind of prideful attitude. Rather, hope in God and put your faith in God and in His graciousness and in His promises. That is the right heart we should seek to have. And um, one of the great stresses Of life is when you get a car and when you get a car especially when you're among people with no cars uh, what happens is you become the designated driver for everyone right and you you know typically you live with friends who just they don't live in the same neighborhood right you know what happens the end of every event or even the beginning of it's like can you pick me up can you pick me up can you can you drive me home can you drive me home and in the beginning they're gracious Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for driving me home. Let me pay for gas. Like, blah, blah, blah. Weeks go by. Years go by. And then it just becomes, oh, yeah, yeah he's going to drive us. Don't worry, don't worry. He's got us. And then you know what happens in the driver's heart? Anger. It's pure anger. And it's just, I hate, I hate you so much that you assume that I even want to drive you. <laughs> right? Every driver knows this. Believe me, talk to someone. And if you are that person who in absolutely no gratitude assumes that people will drive you, shame on you, for you are Israel. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. When you get a car, you'll know. If you have a car, you know. If you know, you know. Point number three, you get what you want. Verse 14, I once heard a pastor say this. Those who don't believe in God live their life as if there is no God. They deny Him and seek to live a life with no God. So their reward in the end is exactly what they wanted in their life. They go to the one place where they can have no God. Those who live for themselves will reap the reward for that. And those who live their life for God will reap the reward for that. Luke 17, 33, Jesus says, Whoever strives to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. This verse is absolutely terrifying. At least it should be. Like the verse in today's text, in verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods, he says to Israel, right? This is what God said to Israel in their repentance. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Oh my gosh. Isn't that terrifying? Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And of course, he knows they can't. It's terrifying. Here, God is saying to Israel, I have seen and remember your ways just as they remember God as the deliverer. It's like, oh yeah, remember that God that we used to worship? He saved us multiple times. He'll probably save us again. Oh God, sorry. We'll throw these idols away temporarily again. Right? God remembers. Remember God as the deliverer, yet chose to forsake him. God remembered their constant departure from him. Their moments of apostasy had now become a gradual slope or decline towards full out, falling away. And it is in this decline, in this declining moment, right, that God chooses to pick up Israel. Not by the means of eagle's wings, but by a slap in the face. Right? He says, no.
1: Is it harsh? Perhaps. Needed? I think so.
0: What will break this pattern of sin but a firm wake-up call? We all have that friend, or maybe it's you, with a pattern of detrimental behavior in life, right? The worst part is that the person is aware of their condition. This is the worst. This is the worst case. When the person is aware of their condition, admits to their condition, expresses guilt and remorse verbally, but continues to live in that way anyway. It's the worst. They will blame anything and everything and anyone. My upbringing, my this, my influences, my lack of that, opportunity, blah blah blah, right? They'll blame anything and everything and anyone for their faults. But they themselves, they will not change. They may not need a helping hand. What they would, I would argue, might need is a slap in the face. Okay, that's not to say like go right now and slap someone in the face. That's not what I'm saying. It's figurative. Figurative slap in the face. I am reminded of the prodigal son. One of the most perplexing elements of that story to me is that the father lets his son depart knowing, seemingly knowing what would result or could result. He knows what will come of his son potentially, but he also knows that this will in the long term benefit him. Now we can't claim to know what's best for anyone else. We're all sinners, we're tainted, we're imperfect. Even in our own selves, we can't claim what's best for us. But perhaps we need to be open to the idea that once our sins and failures become a pattern unbreakable, what needs to break is actually us. And in that breaking, that pattern might break as well. We don't wish ill upon anyone, of course, but maybe the best prescription to the unrepentant is, in fact, a deprivation of the medicine. God relents Himself to Israel that they would, in response, turn to Him evermore. Give them what they want to see, that they don't really want it. You know, babies, you know, when you take away that toy they're not playing with, they all of a sudden want it? I maybe mean, that's what's going on here. What a terrifying thing it is to know that our natural desires are in fact what God deprives us of for our own sake. And that one of the worst things that God could allow in our life is, or at least for me, in my life is for me to rely on the things I love more than Him. It's to allow me to love those things. That would be terrifying for me. May it never be that God would simply allow me to have what I want. Please God. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Isn't that a weird prayer to pray? Sounds weird, right? God, don't let me love what I love. Don't just leave me like that. But change my heart to want you more. This is sort of the change that we, this is what we talk about in sanctification. Sanctification, yes, on a practical level, is a change in behavior. But on an internal level, it's really a change in desire. Finally, God's great heart of compassion in verse 16 is demonstrated. So up until this point, you could argue, oh, God seems so cold. He's so mean, right? Verse 16. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. What a compassionate God we have. We cannot forget this either. We must hold both firmly in our understanding, right? God will punish sin for our benefit, but He will be compassionate for us. Finally, God's heart. Simple lesson to conclude. God's heart is, in fact, at its core, a heart is at the heart of uh, today's text. My question to you is, do you see that heart? Sometimes we just read the actions of God and we make judgment calls on that, right? But Do you see the attributes of God revealing themselves to you today? Many people argue that God is so cold and mean in the Old Testament. But look here in verse 16. This is not from the New Testament. This is not Jesus. This is, well, in a sense, it's the same heart, but we're talking about the Old Testament God, so to speak, right? God could bear no longer the misery of His people. It is not the repentance and cries that stir Him to deliver Israel. If you read it in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more obvious what, how these uh, actions connect. But it's not the repentance and cries that stir God to, to all of a sudden deliver Israel. What does it say here? The misery of His people is what stirs Him.
1: In other words, his compassion moves him to deliver,
0: to protect, preserve his remnant. Davis writes again, in verse 16 itself, does not tie Yahweh's compassion to Israel's repentance, but to her misery or suffering. Those of us, especially the reformed crowd, they're going to raise eyebrows here. And they're going to point to justice, wrath, depravity, etc. I get you, I hear you. Just like how I warn you always, right? To look at the cross and not forget, this, not forget to see the wrath and punishment of God unleashed upon the Son. But at the same time, don't forget to
1: see the heart of that action. That heart is a heart of compassion.
0: John Murray in his book, The Atonement, he writes, It should be understood that it was not necessary for God to redeem man. The purpose to redeem is of the free and sovereign exercise of His love. It can then be argued that the salvation of our souls is not dependent on any action on our end. We work based righteousness, we believe in faith-based righteousness, right? But on the grace of God, exercised from His heart of compassion. His compassion, His will to save is what we are dependent on for our salvation then. What we are to hope in. Israel thought they could just do the same thing again and everything will be back to normal. Israel Just thought lightly of God and of his deliverance. They treated him like an old softie that would always come to save the day because he loves them. Kind of reminds me of my grandmother, right? Go to my dad, buy me this. No. Go to my mom, buy me this. No. Go to my grandma, buy me this. Of course, because she's grandma. She will always buy you. And so we treat God this way. It's like, God, like, I know I screwed up again, but you know, (laughs) help me out here one more time, right? That's how we treat him some soft man's arms always open wide and be like, oh, it's okay, right? No. Please. Don't treat him like that. He's not your personal vending machine for grace. He may love his people, but his deliverance is not enacted on the premise of the action of his people.
1: But rather on his will.
0: And his heart for them. This is very reassuring. And you might not, sound, you might not say, well, that doesn't sound reassuring. It's very reassuring. I'll tell you why. Because my life and its actions are by no means worthy of stirring any kind of deliverance. To know that my salvation is not works-based, but faith-based on who God is and what He has done and will do is a miracle. And it is a blessing. Yes, God loves us, but just that does not deem just automatic saving. It is from that love and a heart of compassion, combined with His grand will for all things, that come together to work on our behalf for our salvation. Finally, the commentator writes, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in, and I love this, the intensity of God's compassion. I conclude by reminding you of what we've learned today. Number one, remember that all our sins are done in the sight of the Lord. They are observed and recorded by God. This reminder is said so that we will fear the Lord, that we will grieve our sins. Number two, what we deserve is death. God does not owe us saving. We are not to cheapen grace by assuming it is a right that we deserve. Number three, in life's end, we will get what we want, so to speak. In hell, no God. In heaven, God. And finally, number four, God indeed delivered Israel still. And he indeed delivered us from death. This is rooted in his heart of compassion and will for all things. Not in anything we have done or can even do. Grace is given, not earned in the book The Power of Habit. This is not a Christian book by a man named Charles Duhigg expresses this idea about habits. Never read this book, it's a really interesting book. I don't know much about psychology but you know, it's a pretty popular book so I picked it up, I read it. Habits, he writes, are not, I'm paraphrasing here. Habits are not destroyed, but rather they are changed. They can only be changed. They can't be eliminated. We're to develop ourselves by changing our habits to positive ones, taking negative habits and changing them to positive ones instead of thinking about how to simply get rid of bad ones, and he says this is a problem in a lot of people. A lot of people observe bad habits in their life, and they're just trying to get rid of it. Quit smoking, quit drinking, quit this, right? But you need to actually replace those habits with good ones to displace them out of your life. So his argument is that we should look to change, not replace. Or sorry, we should look to change by replacing. So perhaps our pattern of sin is best defeated by a change in attitude, change in heart, if you will. I think what the Bible would call a change in desire from the passions or for the passions of worldly things to heavenly ones. I hope and pray, brothers and sisters, that we will grasp the warning and teaching of today's text and revel in the love and compassion
1: of God today. Let's pray.